As I promised you in the last show, there is a part two to this Malcolm McDowell interview because he was so much fun. And here it is now, our part two with Malcolm McDowell. And whose whose idea was it to have singing in the rain? To, you uh, know who it was. <laughs> no, no. Oh, tell us. Tell us. You know the truth is, and I didn't realize this, but when I went to London, I did this thing for the BFI or the whatever. Um, yeah, BFI, British Film Institute, and we were doing a Q and A in front of you know whatever. And um, the guy said, "You." You know, it's interesting because you were um, you weren't just an actor for hire. You were a collaborator, and I went, "Yes, I was absolutely," because he wouldn't do mm-hmm. anything without he checked, and vice versa. So that when we were had a tremendous problem with the scene, which uh, in the book is written, the the droogs come in, throw bottles through a window. And he'd had all the window made of sugar glass and, uh, and you know, but the whole thing about it was, and I kept saying to him, I can't do that. And he goes, well, why not? And I go, because it's, it's just, um, it's, it's real, it's realistic. We're not making a real, it's too realistic. There's got to be some, it's got to be in with some style. I can't just, go in and behave like now suddenly a vicious hoodlum. You know, there's got to be a style to it. And this went on for, I mean, literally five days. The camera did not turn. He shoved all the crew out into the garden. They put a marquee tent up. They they all sat out there while we just sat around the set. And then every morning I'd arrive and I'd see Harrod's furniture vans and they were changing all the furniture because he thought maybe that's where the answer lay. But on the fifth day, I was now getting very bored. As he passed me, I'm sitting on these stairs, and he just said, can you dance? That's all he said. And I jumped up, and I went, can I dance? <laughs> and I literally ad-libbed the whole scene, smacking her, whacking, kicking, as a sort of... Total comedy. I mean, it was outrageous. It was like, you know, um, the moment when Sellers started to see Kyle, you know. Uh, and oh, the, and, oh the when he gets, he gets up, up that was, yeah, strange love, yeah. Yeah, that's completely, you know, improv. And, and then I began to think, I remember it was, so, you know, he went off, he pushed me in the car, we went off. He obviously, he loved it. He had his handkerchief in his mouth. And he was laughing so hard, tears were running down his cheeks. He was laughing so hard because it was so outrageous. And then we had this mm-hmm. actress that was a bit hoity-toy. And, you know, I'm now whacking her around and, you know, <laughs> cutting the old titties off and the whole thing. And she's going, well, I hope we have more costume. <laughs> and I went, oh, I think we've got a couple. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Well, people forget it's a black comedy. 
course. Of course. I mean, it's he, an intense he film. To his, he drove back to his house, bought the rights to Singing in the Rain, and we went back and we just sh- took a week to reshoot to shoot the whole thing. But I remember, you know, standing outside. We just had dinner outside, going to my car with Stanley, and he said to me, he goes, yeah, well, you know, um, I, say, I, say, I said to him, what am I, what do you think, what am I going to wear? And he goes, yeah. And he, and he sort of paused and he went, what have you got? I went, what? What have I got? <laughs> I said, this is a futuristic movie. Wait, you think I've got, what, Flash Gordon's cape at home? <laughs> I went, the only thing I've got, the only thing I've got is my cricket gear in the car. And he said, I want to see it. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so I put it on and he goes, and what's this? I said, well, that's the protector for your balls, you know. And he said, wear it on the outside. I went, oh, Inspired. yeah. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar, trying to make up our razudos what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus, Milk Plus Velocet, or Sintamesk, or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultra-violence. And there, it's the cricket whites with the protector, the cod piece, and then the other little bits. And then I brought him a yard of eyelash from Bieber as a gift, and he said, put it on, wear it. I went, me? He goes, yeah, let me see it. And he took pictures of one eye, two eyes. And then he called me the next day and he goes, you're just going to wear it on one eye. It's You look at your face and you think, what's wrong? And you can't see it immediately. It's very disconcerting. You know, he loved it. It's funny that Singing in the Rain is the obvious, in a way, it's, it's an inspired choice, but it's in a, in a way, it's the obvious choice. You saw Alex as a lover of life. Yeah, and, and, exactly. And, and, you know, the, the song made sense. Of course, you, you know the story, you know, a year later. Sure, the sure. Films, and everybody's talking about singing in the rain and, you know, and, you know, I, I come out to Hollywood and um, I had a Warner Brothers minder who said, uh, Malcolm, there's a, a great uh, party in the flats of Beverly Hills tonight. You know, people like Rosemary Clooney and all these great stars are going to be there. Where do you want to go? And I went, yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm dying to meet him. Oh, my God, yes, please. So we go along. And he goes, oh, uh, he went, I said, he went to get me a glass of wine. I mean, he came back and he said, uh, you won't believe it, but Gene Kelly's here. Do you want to say? I went, oh, my God, yes, please. So we walked up to Gene Kelly and he'd had, he had his back to us. And, and the minder tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around, instantly saw me and he looked me up and down and he said, oh, uh, Gene, this is Malcolm McDowell. And he just looked at me and he turned and walked off and um, 
course, the minder was embarrassed and started to apologize. I said, hey, don't apologize. You know, I took this man's great moment, one of them. He's got many, unlike me. I've only got the one. I said, but he... I said, I took that moment and turned it on its head. Of course he's not thrilled. Of course. I understand. He's pissed. He hates my guts. Okay. So I let it drop. 40 years later, telling that story at the Academy, they had a screening, I think, for the 40th anniversary. And this lady comes up, lovely lady, comes up and goes, Malcolm, I'm Jean's widow. And I want to tell you something. He wasn't pissed with you. He was pissed at Kubrick. And I said, well, I can understand that because it's easy to be pissed at him. But why? And she said, because he never paid him. <laughs> Isn't that wild? I know. What a twist. You were good friends with Peter O'Toole. Well, I wasn't good friends, but we were, you know, we worked together and, and I adored him. I, I, I wouldn't claim that I was a great friend, but every time we saw each other, we'd give a hug and, and a chat, you know, as old actors do. Of course, he was older than me, but I always loved him. You know, I remember the first time I saw him um, was I was an extra or a small part, very small part player. I think I had 12 lines in a Shakespeare play at the Aldwych at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And somebody said to me, oh, and Malcolm, why don't you come with, there's a bring a bottle party up in uh, Hampstead. And, uh, you know, we're all going up. I went, yeah, I'll go, I'll grab, I'll grab a bottle and come on up. So we're up in somebody's, I don't know whose house it was, but enjoying, you know, young actors full of, the, you know, joys of. And suddenly there was a quiet and I looked, and there, standing, who'd just come in, was this Greek god who had this flaxen blonde hair, was as thin as a rail, had these long boots to the knees with his jeans tucked in them. He was smoking a cigarette with, um, you know, a, a, a cigarette holder. And there he was, the great Peter O'Toole, Lawrence Arabia himself. So um, that was the first time I saw him. Of course, you know, I'd, I always loved his work. And, and, you know, I worked with Robert Shaw, who was a great friend of Peter's. And um, so I worked with Robert and on my second movie. And Robert um, was very bitter about Peter's success in a weird way because... You know, uh, and we go back to Lawrence of Arabia, that Albert Finney was cast as Lawrence. Yes. And uh, so uh, they went to the lawyer's office with Sam Spiegel, who produced the movie for David Lean, who directed it, of course. And Albert, they're looking through the things, and Albert goes, I see here that, that, uh, that this is not for one picture. This is a three-picture deal. Mr. Spiegel, uh, what's the other two? And Sam Spiegel goes, well, I don't know yet, Albert, but uh, you will be under contract to me for two more pictures. And Albert goes, if I don't know what they are, 
I'm not signing my life away. Sorry. And they got up with his lawyer and he walked out. Now, I don't know whether that's true. It's a good story. Good story. And I'll stick to it. It's a good story. Now, here comes the, here's the thing. Now, they're looking around and they hear, now this I know is true because I know the people involved. They hear that this young actor called Robert Shaw is in a play called The Long, The Short, and The Tall. And it's in tryouts in Bristol, at the Bristol Old Vic. So they jump into a, a car and they go drive to Bristol to watch the play. And they're watching the play and afterwards, and of course, Robert's being called by his agent and said, look out because you're going to get these producers, heavy hitters, they're looking for someone to play Lawrence, one of the great, great parts. And so Robert is like, whoa. Now, um, so after the play, there's Robert in his dressing room and all these people walk straight past his room to the next room, which is the actor called Peter O'Toole, who was also in the play. Mm-hmm. And it was directed by my friend Lindsay Anderson, who directed my first movie, If, and Oh Lucky Man. And, um, and Lindsay told me that uh, poor Robert, they had decided after seeing the play the one they wanted was Peter O'Toole. And, and that was completely out of left field. So Robert was always... And, you know, Robert was a damn good actor, you know, of course. Sure. Uh, and, he was a, and he was a wonderful writer as well. But um, he was an alcoholic, you know. And I, I love The Man in the Glass early, Booth, which he wrote. Which he wrote, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. The Eichmann yeah. story, yeah, pe- basically. People yeah. don't know he, he had all those other talents. Yeah, he did. Yeah. What about James Mason? I mean, you were, the people we read in the intro that you've worked with, I mean, uh, Chris, Christopher yeah. Lee, James Mason, of course, your friend John Gilgood. Oh, by, my by, God, by Christopher way, Lee. Gilbert does a pretty fair uh, James Mason impression, uh, Malcolm. Do, do, do it. Do it. Congratulations, my dear. I seem to have made it just in time. Yeah. I had okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Well done. Well done. Jill, Thank you. Thank you. What do you give him on that one, Malcolm? I give him at least a six. <laughs> he does the he does the whole thing from uh, a star. Where Wars. I'm from, this is uh that's pretty high. Um, I love that man. He was he was terrific. Uh, yeah. Uh, I did a movie with him called The Passage. Oh, sure. You were a terrible character. He and I character. fondly, we we refer to it as the back passage. Um, I'll let that just settle <laughs> for a minute. I I heard a story <laughs> that, that that James Mason told Kay Lenz that no movie with snow in it will ever be a hit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was well. Um, you were, Dr. Shivago didn't do that's too bad. True. You you were a, you were a, a hateful character in that film. Oh, in the pa- I I in the mean passage. James said, Malcolm, and I can't do as good as him, so I'm not even going to try, but he said to me, um, Malcolm, um, I think you better calm down. I know you're playing a Nazi, but uh, you're really ripping a lot of, eating a lot of scenery. I said, you know, James, I know I am. They paid me quite a lot of money for me, and I'm going to give them everything I've got. I'm going to play the whole 
10 years of the Nazi regime in one character. (laughs) 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 And he went, well, rather you than me. And of course, they had quite boring parts, you know. And Anthony Quinn, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's so funny. He's hiding behind any damn rock he can find in the Pyrenees because he doesn't really want to be there. And, you know, James wishes he was somewhere else. Uh, The dear Patricia O'Neill was in it. Oh, yes. Who was married to Roald Dahl. That's right. The children's writer, very famous. Weird guy. Ooh, that was a weird (laughs) intro. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's move on from that one. What a, but so <laughs> it was a, it was an amazing cast. Yes, it's a great know, cast. And, and uh, Quinn came off as a big, you know, like big heavy. Eh, you'd say, "Morning, Anthony." Eh, eh. Oh, lovely day today. Got a nice a bit of snow we got last night. Very nice, six inches or something. Eh. And I say, "Well, lovely talking to you." I'm going for a coffee now. And that was it. Mm. He's a real grunter, you know. What, what about Christopher Lee, who you were starting to, uh, to, to, oh to, speak, my God. to speak about? Bored for the world, that one. Never get stuck in a car going to a location with Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours of nonstop rabbit about himself. I go... Yeah, I know, Chris. Yeah, then you played. Yeah, then what was it? Yeah, I know that. You were, yeah, you were in that. And uh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, my God. So, you know, I, I have to torture him, right? I have to yes, torture him. Yes, well, I... first off, you know, he, he, he didn't start very well because he came late and we heard from the costume department he was playing a gypsy and he wanted his costume made in Hollywood. I said, well, it's rags. You know, he's playing a gypsy. <laughs> no, it had to be made for him. <laughs> so, you know, we had heard these stories. and It was like, oh, my God, he's, a, you know, uh, he's a bit like that. So, so we come to the scene and we're rehearsing. And I'm in the full Nazi colonel's gear. He's tied to a chair. Mm-hmm in the middle of a square in a little town in the Pyrenees, and I'm torturing him, you know. And um, so I had to whack him, so I knocked his hat off. And he goes, oh, oh, Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm. Oh, stop, stop, sorry. No, 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 no. Can I have a word with you in private? I went, yes. And he was tied to the chair, so I leant in. And he said, look, oh, my good God. He said, you may not know this, but I'm actually wearing a piece now, the piece was so obvious, it was like he had, a, he had a red light on his forehead and it was flashing. And I went, oh, you're wearing a piece. Good God, would never have seen it. Good God, Hilarious. that's beautifully made. I went, what can I do? I'm supposed to hit you. He said, could you just be careful with the hat in case it f- flips off? I went... <laughs> I'm a Nazi curl, for Christ's sake. I'm torturing you. I can't go pussyfooting. Just take your hat off. I've got to wallop you. I can't. I've got to do it, Chris. 
So, of course, he was nervous as Nelly, you know, and, and um, anyway, of course, I, I had to do it all the way back to the hotel. I heard, you know, the thing about, I said, look, Chris, let me give you just, if I may, as a young actor, just a sh- small word of advice. Get rid of the piece and start playing characters. He went, good God, there's no way I'd ever work again if I took this piece off. I went, my God, okay. Wow. And he never did. Yes. He never did. I, and of course I, he... No, I, I was going to say, I heard, you know, when he was doing all his monster movies, when he was Frankenstein or the yeah. mummy, heavy makeup, he would keep the toupee on. Yeah. And they'd have yeah. to put all the stuff on top of it. Oh, yeah. You know, he's like that actor who he hadn't worked for ages and the agent sends him a script and he reads the script and he goes, it's a leading part in a television series. He goes, yeah, but, um, and, you know, he wears a good rug and stuff. He goes, <laughs> yes, but this character at the end takes his wig off uh, because he's in disguise. He goes, yes, perfect for you. He goes, well, I'm not wearing a wig. I couldn't possibly play that scene. So he did it, and they put a wig on top of the wig so he could take that wig off <laughs> at the end. <laughs> and here's another one. Frankie Howard. You know Frankie Howard is one of the great comedians in England. Went in to make... He was in all the carry-on films. Okay. Went in oh. and said... He had complete peace. He went in, sat down in the makeup chair, and he said, Oh, I think... Ooh, I think a little short back and size would be nice. And the guy goes, what? Oh, Frankie, hey, it's me. You know, I know what it is. And he goes, what? Short back and sides. He made him trim the piece and trying to pretend that it was was his own hair. (laughs) Of course, he had a few of them. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Malcolm, on the subject of that movie, uh, a gentleman who lives in the UK who listens to this show, Jonathan Sloman, says, I believe Malcolm has a story about Nazi underwear in the passage. Does that mean anything to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, all right. (laughs) There's so many stories on that film. But, um... I was first up, you know, I had, I was only, I, I played a supporting part, like kind of we all did, you know. The whole idea was, you know, Quinn is a Basque guide taking this family, James Mason, yes. Trish O'Neill, and kids, Kay Lentz and another one, can't remember him, the kid, the son, and he's taking them to freedom outside Germany, to Spain, where they can get away to, on a British boat and get get him to England, because he is uh, a thermonuclear scientist working on the fusion. That's right. and on the H the A bomb, and so uh, and the of course the Allies did not want the Germans to get the A bomb before them. So that's the premise. And um, so I was first up for some reason, uh, and I it was a rape scene with Kay Lentz. So the nasty Nazi rapes the daughter, you know, to make everybody really love him. So that's the way we start the damn thing. (laughs) 
So, so we start, and it's a three-day shoot. It turns into six days because Kay Lentz, who's married to David Cassidy, oh, yes. big pop star at the time, is always running off to the phone to talk about the scene, and she's going, "Well, I can't, I can't do, I can't do naked, I can't." And he's going, "Why should you? Why should you? You do, you can't do it." And I'm going, "It's a shower." Jesus, you wear your bikini in a shower? What's, what's going on? You're wearing your underwear in a shower? I mean, come on. So three days turns into six days. And so finally, they're in there. I don't know what the buggering about with her, the you know, makeup are in there for hours and hours. She finally walks into the scene and literally... I just guffawed because there were there were tape strips of tape over her breasts, great big like hot cross buns, <laughs> and a great big slathering piece of tape, uh, you know, down below over the privates. I mean, she looked like I mean. <laughs> so I mean, how was I supposed to? I went, sorry, darling, I can't rape this at all. <laughs> I just cannot. Uh, sorry, oh no, no, no. Oh, my God. And uh, so more argy-bargy. So I just went to the um, to the wardrobe. Oh, he's such a sweet guy. I said, you know what? Do me a favor, just for fun, because everybody was had had it with this. I said, um, when I whipped my pants down on the jock strap, could you put some um, swastikas for me. If you could make them glitter, it would be great. And he went, oh, oh, I love it. Oh, I'll do it. I love the idea. So, of course, the end of this, the very last scene, and we've got this great cameraman, the operator, and, you know, he's holding the bloody camera. They're not like they are today. This is a 100-pound camera that he's got on his shoulder. And he's and so, literally, I whip the pants down, stand like that, up with the shirt, and you see these this jock strap with these the, the lame shining and, and all the rest of it with the swastikas, and I do a little twerking, and he literally, he, the cameraman was laughing so much, he have, had to offload the camera on the bed where it bounced. I mean, we just... <laughs> and the director, God bless him, he was such a great guy, such a lovely old-school Hollywood director, Lee J. Thompson, who had done the guns of Navarone. Oh, sure, sure. Le and legend. He said, he said, Malcolm, that's how I want you to play the part. I think it's brilliant. And you know what? Hitler's chauffeur had swastikas on his underwear. And I went, I didn't know that. <laughs> but but uh, I'm all for it. Let's go with it. And so that's the kind of the way I played it. In Wonderful. Yeah. And and there's a very popular rumor that during the making of Caligula, I knew you... we'd get round to this. That you were actually having sex uh, with my wife. <laughs> where, where did you read that, Gilbert? Yeah, I Gilbert, heard. You're now you're now blowing smoke through your ass. <laughs> that is, yeah. there's no quotes that say that. I never had sex other than uh, privately at home, right. and not, not even um, with the horse. No, but that got close. Yeah. Uh, no, of course not. Um, you know, there's no way on a set anyway you could have sex. 
The one I heard the way they had sex was Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Oh, yes. And, and they didn't have sex. That's now. all bull. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's all bull. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, but there are so many great stories about Caligula that in this pandemic, I have been literally thinking I'm going to do a one-man show about the making of Caligula. You have to. And, and the absolute bullshit that went down with Gore Vidal. Yeah. And Bob Guccione. I heard you say you know, you're going to come to, out on stage wearing a toga over your blue jeans. You, well, you, I, I, <laughs> did you hear that? Yeah, you, I was you, thinking of it. But I it. may not do that because what we're going to do is we're actually going to make a documentary about it. And I'll oh, use great. like in, like, uh, in um, I Never Apologize, I'll use a stage performance to join all the bits together. But the stories are, I mean, it's... You know, Sodom and Gomorrah. Of it's course. the mid, late 70s. It's, I mean, it's Rome. It's, you know, Gore Vidal having, you know, queenie fits all over the place. Drunken calls, four in the morning. And, um, you know, I said, Gore, God's sake, it's four o'clock. I've got a six o'clock call. Um, look, what's the problem now? I, I said, look. You know, the best thing is not to come on set if it upsets you, you know. Um, and he's like, you know, you've really disappointed me, Malcolm, really. I mean, you really have. You're not doing my stuff. I go, look, we've got to make it work. It doesn't work the way you've written it. And this, oh, <laughs> this went on Adam from Nightum, you know. But when I first met with Gore, I said to him, who's... Who's going to pay for it? Who's the? And he said, "Well, this man called Bob Guccione, isn't he a pornographer, the penthouse guy?" And he goes, "Malcolm, just think of him as one of the Warner Brothers." <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Can you believe this? Oh, that's hilarious! I love that that movie started out in life as Gore Vidal's Caligula. <laughs> yeah. I know. The title is so absurd. And I said to him, you know, Gore, you had the actual pleasure and the benefit of taking your name off this movie. Yes. I'm stuck there. It's my (laughs) face. I'm stuck. I can't withdraw my services. You know, I would love to. I mean, I would love to, but I can't. I've just got to grin and bear it. You've got to do he, the one-man show. And, and I said, Gore, I cannot do buggery. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, have a, I do have a career outside of this, and I will not... Okay, I'll fuck the bride. I am not <laughs> buggering the groom. I can't do it. It just goes against the grain. And, you know, this is the 70s. People weren't ready for that, for the male, you know, to be up somebody's body on, you know, 60-foot screen. <laughs> I mean, it's just no way. So I can't do it, darling. Cannot do it. Don't want to do it. And then, you know, he'd say, he'd say to me, Malcolm, you're such a prude. I said, a prude? I'm the guy that did Clockwork Orange, for Christ's sake. I mean, I'm a prude? And so this bantering went on. And then the producer went away for a week, a long weekend. He came back all refreshed. And I said, Franco, Franco Rossellini. I said, Franco, 
you look so happy. Where have you been? He goes, darling, I went to New York. And I had a wonderful time. I went to this club in the meat market called The Anvil. And I went, oh, oh, I've heard of that. That's sort of like this gay club, right? He goes, oh, I said, what do they do in there, The Anvil? He goes, oh, they go on a stage and people fist fuck. <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> yes, they, they fist fuck. They, they put their fist. I went, oh, you know what? I'll fish fuck the group. I'll fish fuck him. That's what I'll do. Thank you very much. So I tell the director, and he said, I said, we'll have to do it in a kitchen. And, and you know, and, and I can put my hand into a great big tub of lard and stick my thing up as I'm saying, I, Caligula Caesar, in the name of the Senate and the people of Rome. And he goes, great. Great. So we're, we're sitting on we're sitting on the set and waiting to do the sequence. And you know the the girl comes in, the actress, and I said, "I'm darling, I'm so sorry, but you know it's all we're just going to affect it. Not there won't be any bare flesh or any anything like that. You won't feel anything. You know, uh, we'll just simulate. You know, copulation." She said, "I really, you know, she was so sweet. She goes, I don't mind whatever you want to do.'" And then I went, who's this person with all these people? There's 12 people. Like, it, there's, like the heavyweight champion of the world is coming into the ring, you know. And they went, oh, that's the guy that's playing the groom. And I went, well, who are all these people? And they said, well, that's his family. I went, <laughs> what? Does he know? Does he know that I'm going to stick my fist up his ass? <laughs> I said, please. Get the family members off the set. I mean, this is, this is going to be humiliating. And will somebody please go up and explain exactly what he's going to do? So, of course, the guy was horrified, horrified. And I said, look, you know, I'll make it as gentle as I can. <laughs> and of course, I simulate and stick my fist of in course. his ass. But it was close enough. And I had a huge welt of lard on my fist. And I shoved it in the first time, withdrew it and went, Oh, my ring! I've lost my ring! <laughs> oh, excuse me! <laughs> and there it was, tucked away by the sphincter in a whole daub of lard on it. So I got it, took out a little rose from the for garland I had uh, stuck it right on yes, his ass. I remember. Oh my I gosh. Know. <laughs> this, you've got, Malcolm, you've got to do this one person show. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Because I've just been thinking, you know, the reason I haven't done it is because I felt such a betrayal about the film. I never ever wanted to talk about it when I finished it. Of course. Because they inserted all this porn. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was such a betrayal to us actors that they'd done this. Although I must say, John Gielgud didn't mind. I saw John Gielgud on Third Avenue after the film had been playing, and he was there doing Arthur, and I, I saw him. I went, John, John. He went, oh, oh, Malcolm, oh, have you seen the film? Have you seen the film? I said, no, I, well, no, I haven't seen it. He said, oh, I've seen it three times, and I paid twice. <laughs> I said, what's it like? He said, 
frightfully good. Frightfully good. I think you'll like it. So then somebody, somebody then must have gotten to him and said, look, this is outrageous porn. You better not keep going around saying to people that you like it. And the next thing I hear, yes, it's quite disgusting. It's quite disgusting <laughs> film that we made in Rome. They, they didn't pay me very much. <laughs> the poor guy's in the tub the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's in the tub. No, he came to me the at the beginning. He came to my, uh, my room and I went, John, how lovely to see you. Thanks for doing the part. You know, you, you've really made this for me. Uh, you know, to have you in this movie is such, I mean, it's such a thrill. And he goes, oh, Malcolm, well, you know, they're not really paying me very much and, and I'm not getting very much per diem. But I hear you have a villa. Is it possible you may have a room or two? I said, John, Jesus. Oh, my God, I've got a whole wing for you. And it's yours. So he moved into this villa and I had him there for two weeks Love while he was shooting his part. Love it. And he'd be playing the piano after dinner, you know, mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And he was doing all this stuff and the, the stories. Oh, it was so beautiful. What a man. What a I wonderful actor. Him. <laughs> yeah. And what, My favorite. Uh, and what a way My with favorite comedy. English actor. Yeah. Brilliant. Re really. Absolutely brilliant. And he said to me, I didn't really learn, you know, how to act on film. Till very late, I must have been nearly 70. And I did the charge of the light brigade with Tony. I went, oh, you were wonderful in it. He said, yes, and I was always rather self-conscious. You know, I've got rather a big nose. And my voice, it's just my voice. I went, your voice, your voice is heaven sent. He said, no, I know, but I just can't stand the way I look. But look at Larry, he's moved so beautifully. He's such a beautiful man. And he'd go off in raptures about Olivier, you know. Wow. And you heard, you were studying tapes of H.G. Wells' voice. Well, not tape, gramophone records. Yeah. From the B BBC archives. Because I thought, well, I'm going to Hollywood for the first time to do a movie and playing H.G. Wells. And all they're all, all you know, method actors over there. Better, better uh, you know, at least find out what he sounds like so I can, you know, copy it somewhat. Of course, not, not really realizing that who the hell would know what H.G. Wells sounds like? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so I was so in anticipation of listening to his voice, which was a recording of a radio broadcast that he gave in 1928, and I put it on, it was cracked, <coughs> you know, and it came through and it, it was... Hello, this is H.G. Wells talking from Crystal Palace. I'd just like to say to you uh, how happy I am to be here at this time. And I thought, ah, a bit of southeast London there. I don't think so with the old high pitch. I don't think the Americans would go for that. So I think I'll just make up my own H.G. Wells. Gentlemen, I have called you together tonight to bid you farewell. Farewell? Where are you off to? Oh, going abroad? Another holiday in Scotland, eh? No. No, I am going travelling. But I'm not leaving London. Indeed. I do not expect to be leaving my laboratory. Mm -hmm. Riddles again. Gentlemen, 
I am talking about traveling through time in a machine constructed for that very purpose. Of course, I was criticized in England or, or for you? not sounding like H.G. Wells. Because <laughs> there was some old bastard who was 95 and was a fucking critic because he doesn't even sound like him. <laughs> uh, that movie not only came along at the right time for you, Malcolm, because it rescued you from, from Caligula. Yes. But it, but, it, yes. Uh, but it gave you two wonderful gifts, which are your two children. Uh, your, your, exactly. Your two oldest children, I should say, Charlie and Lily. Yes, yeah. that is exactly it. I actually, you know, I, I fell in love with Mary on that movie. and We had a magnificent time in San Francisco. And, and then, of course, um, not too long after, two great kids, you know, and uh, who I'm incredibly proud of, of course. And Lily has um, got three daughters of her own now, so I've got three grandchildren. Wow, three congratulations. Great. Gilbert's daughter, Gilbert's daughter is also named Lily. Oh, yes. I read that, actually. I read yeah. that. Great, and, and, great. And Char so Charlie, I, I, Charlie produced and directed one of my favorite shows, which is On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which is just terrific. He, he I know. directed I 10 episodes. Really yeah. good. Well, he didn't direct 10. I think he directed a few, but he oversaw everything. He I was see. The producer. Terrific um, show. He also did a lot of, uh, he did a few of uh, Silicon Valley. And he directed a wonderful film with Jason Siegel and Robert Redford, one of uh, Redford's last movies, yes. called The Discovery. Mm -hmm. It's on Netflix. And I see he's I, working I on a project was... with Christoph Waltz. He's got something in the pipeline. Yes. Yeah. And I, he's such a great actor. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. And we can't leave out, you killed Captain Kirk. I know. The world <laughs> should get down on their knees and thank me for putting, getting rid of this blowhard <laughs> once and for all. Did you actually get threats on the internet? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I was called up by my nephew, who's a wonderful actor called Alexander Sadig. His actual name is Sadig El Fadil, but um, uh, that's his stage name. Mm -hmm. And he was in uh, one of the later ones, uh, the Star Treks, okay. uh, Deep Space Nine. Okay, he's one of the he's one of the regulars in it. And he called me. He said, "Uncle Malcolm, are you are you going to the opening in New York?" I went, "Yeah, yeah, we we're going uh, tomorrow." We're, and he goes, "Well, look, um, I'm on the internet." I mean, we didn't know what that was then. And he said, and, and there are a lot of people that are very angry with you. I went, what, for being in the movie? And they go, no, for killing Kirk. I went, they do know that this is a fantasy, of course, that I am not really Dr. Soren and that he's not really James T. Kirk. I went, Jesus, get alive. So I had to tell the producers and they assigned two LAP detectives Unreal. Uh, to come, uh, retired detectives, came to New York. I felt really embarrassed. They were standing outside the hotel, not a person within a mile. And I'm going, guys, just go for dinner, you know, go have you. And went, no, no, we can't. And the, the poor guys had to stay there. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed 
doing that movie, really, because um, mainly because I knew uh, Patrick Stewart. I was at Stratford on Avon with him and the Royal mm -hmm. Shakespeare Company, you know, when we were kids. So, well, he was playing old men even then. Um, and that was 1965. Um, but he, I always liked Patrick. He was a wonderful actor, you know. And I was very happy that um, he'd made such, such a success of, you know, playing Picard and all that. Um, but, of course, the reason that they all were, you know, having deals and this, that and the other and living the life of Riley were because of Shatner and, um, you know, uh, Leonard. Of course. Who had done that original script with cardboard sets, you know, and cheesy costumes. But it's it's really interesting about Star Trek and the, the, the little moral tales. Yes. They always, and they're sort of timeless in a way. Yeah. And, you know, the public just absolutely loved it, even if there weren't that many of them because they took it off after a couple of years or whatever it was. Sure. But, but you know... Um, uh, Bill is something else, you know, really. <laughs> did, he uh, say, did he say to you he was interviewing you for his book after? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, after I killed him, yes. you know, and I had kind of finished, and he he pulled his chair over and turned on a, a little uh, recorder. He said, Malcolm, uh, you don't mind if I interview you for my book? I went, what book? He goes, well, I'm doing a book of this. You know, I got I to gotta make everything out of these things that I can. I went, oh, okay. He goes, okay, well, first question. What's it really like to have killed an icon of American theater and American television? I went, oh, uh, well, all I will tell you, Bill, is that half the people are going to hate me and the other half are going to love me. And he goes, really? <laughs> who's going who's to love you? I went, the people that have had up to there for, for 30 fucking years of you, Bill. That's who's going to love me. Finally, we got rid of you. And he went, he clicked off. He just laughed. He just laughed. Gilbert just spent some time with him recently. Didn't you, Gil? Did you? Oh, yeah. 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 He's hilarious. And you he have is. to admire this guy. I mean, he's 90 almost, Almost. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He may be. He may be 90. He's got all these irons. I... I mean, look, talk about a great working actor. Wow. You, um, you know Slouch yourself, Malcolm. I counted on IMDb that you've got 16 projects in the pipeline for, th for 2020 and 2021. Well, <laughs> and, oh, they've all been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's why I'm here ruminating about Caligula. <laughs> one, one, more, one more question from a fan and a friend, uh, Don Rio who you made per oh. Pearl with, says, I don't have a question for Malcolm. Please tell him I love him, and I can't wait to play golf with him again. I love that man, too. Uh, you know, he wrote me the most incredible part uh, when he, he wrote um, and produced this sitcom called uh, Pearl. Yeah, it's very good. With Rhea Perlman, yep. for Rhea, you know, a vehicle for her. But he wrote the most amazing part uh, of a professor of humanities from hell and it was such a delicious delight to play this character with Rhea who's an incredible pro 
I mean, I, I always said if Rhea Perlman was in England, she'd be working at the National Theatre. And it's true, well, she would. Well. But Don Rio, what a, what a talent, what an extraordinary man. And, you know, he's done so many of these television hits and he's so clever. He's a great guy. And, and also, he's a damn good golfer. But I just had a knee, knee replacement, so I haven't played for a while. Okay. Uh, I hope you're feeling better. I was going to ask you how your game is. We barely talk, talked about a lucky man, which I, I, I re-watched the other night. And, and boy, it, what an ambitious, uh, uh, ad, adventurous, creative film for you to be doing as such, yeah. a, as such a young man. And this, uh, this documentary, or this uh, one-person show, I should say, uh, this, uh, this uh, show. It's kind of a doc. Yeah, 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 but this this was very sweet. Your your uh, your tribute to your friend Lindsey Anderson, and, yeah, and and also and his love of John Ford, which is absolutely fascinating. Oh, and 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 which he passed on to me. Yeah, you know, um, and Lindsey was uh, just the most beautiful human being, a complete curmudgeon, and could smell bullshit ten miles away, but. A genius. Um, the man was a, such a great artist. You know, he was just a great artist. And I loved him dearly. And, um, you know, I uh, was great friends until the day he died, 28 years later. So I knew him as one of my best friends. And we made some really wonderful um, movies together. And he directed me in a couple of fantastic plays. You know, so, and he really knew how to get the best out of me, and um, I, I just love him for it, you know. And he introduced he, he, you to Ford, and he introduced you to Kurosawa, and he introduced Ford, you to, Oh, yes, yeah. yes, he did. And, yeah. um, you know, he, he'd say, God Almighty, you're so ignorant. If you're going to be an actor in film, you better learn something about it. Now, here's a quiz. Who was a Gene Arthur? I'd say, ah, yes, Gene Arthur. He was a very, no, not he, she. <laughs> one of the great comedians <laughs> of the 30s and 40s. And I went, okay, okay. Uh, so uh, he was, uh, I miss him an awful lot, but I, I wanted to do that documentary or whatever it is, one-man show, yes, because very sweet. I realized that people did not know who Lindsay Anderson was and I just thought, well, I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to do a show about him and about his life. And, of course, then it became about both of us because we're in, intertwined, as it were, with our careers and all that. And, and you know, he's, he wrote some beautiful pieces. Mm -hmm. So it was a labor of love and... Um, it's there now for all time. So. I know you. I know you said you're, you're somebody who tends not to look back, but I was watching Oh Lucky Man and the last scene, which is obviously came from a conversation between the two of you. What happened to you? Well, I became a movie star. Let's do that. That last scene yeah. where the balloons are falling and the entire cast is oh, dancing, yeah. and there's you and Lindsay and Rachel Roberts. Yeah, it, it, you, it must and be, Helen and Helen Helen Mirren. <clears throat> I, I even got choked up watching it, and I wasn't in the film. <laughs> I yeah. thought. What a what a wonderful time capsule to have all the cast Amazing. and all of these people together celebrating. Amazing. Yeah. I know. It's sort of bittersweet, you know, because um, when I watched the film, I realized that there's nobody left. You know, I think the, uh, there is nobody. Just Helen. I remember when I went back for a 
uh, I went, I, there was some, I don't know, something in England uh, at the National Film Theatre, and I said, please make sure that uh, Christine Noonan is going to be there. Now, she played the girl in If. Oh, sure. And she played a part in Oh, Lucky Man, and, and she was, you know, part of my history, if you like. And I, I felt uh, I felt something for her. I'm very loyal to her, and I felt that I wanted her to be there for this occasion, and I was going to call her out, you know. And as I asked, I called them from California, and they went, oh, yes, we'll get her there, don't worry. So we get there, and I go to the theater, and as I'm about to walk on, I turned to, to I said, "Is Christine's here, right? And she said, oh, Malcolm, Christine passed away. Oh, that's sad. Sorry to be a downer about it, but I went, what? And, and they sort of shoved me on the stage, and um, I, I sort of, I, I was in shock, you know, because sure. she couldn't have been that old, you know. And um, I, I, I really do credit her uh, in a way for me starting my career in movies. Because if she hadn't slapped me so hard, actually, it was a punch. Right in if. In the audition. Right. For if. Right. I don't think I would have gotten the parts. And uh, it, it just knocked me into another realm. And uh, I became infuriated and concentrated and animated like a caged tiger and stalked her around the stage. Furious, because I'd been so humiliated. She hit me so hard, knocked me out, knocked me stupid. Mm-hmm. I, I found myself just with tears running down my cheeks, you know, and and sh- and she was a, a little cockney, uh, as they say in Liverpool, hard knock. <laughs> <laughs> she was a great girl. She was a great girl. Listen, um, we've been talking for so long. I gotta, I gotta wrap. Yeah, we'll this wrap. Up we'll wrap. Uh, oh, we'll wrap it up here. Gilbert, I, I gotta go because somebody's waiting for me for dinner over at the. Oh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna fine. wrap it up, Malcolm. Thanks for spending so much time. Hey, you you were great, you guys, all of you, and, and thanks so much for making it um, so much fun. And the next time I should do the whole Caligula thing because, holy God, there's some great ones. Sitting there with Helen and John Gielgud watching dailies, you know, all out of focus, and we're watching, and it's all out of focus, and suddenly it, it starts to go, and John goes, ooh, I think it's a sinkhole. <laughs> and as the thing gets more and more into focus, we realize that it was right up Helen's skirt and when she had no knickers on, it was actually Helen Mirren's asshole. And he goes, oh, no, not a sinkhole, but it's Helen's asshole. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I will say goodbye. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, thank you. I just want to thank you, uh, Karen, and I want to thank uh, Chris Rowe yes. and Gino Salamone for making this possible. Oh yeah, and thank you for spending so much time with us. And I want—I will recommend Charlie's show uh, on becoming Bless a god you. in Central Florida and Charlie's movies okay. too. Look them up, the Duplass. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to a man who was worth waiting for, the great Malcolm McDowell. Okay. Thank you, Malcolm. We'll, we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you. God you bless. were great. Okay. Thanks again, Malcolm. This was special. 
preachers and poets and scholars don't know it. Temples and statues and steeples won't show it. If you've got the secret, just try not to blow it. Stay a lucky man. A lucky man. If you found the meaning of the truth in this whole world, you are a lucky man. If knowledge hangs around your neck like pearls instead of chains, you are a lucky man. You are, you can be what you want if you are what you are.